let's begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. I'd like to read verse 12 through 19. Then we'll discuss that. Then we'll move along to verse 20 to 28, uh, which will lead us up to taking communion together. In verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15, it reads, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. All right, well, let's jump back to verse 12. And as a practice, we'll walk through this together and kind of look at a few things. I want to mention to you in regards to how we think things through. I, I like the picture, the analogy, if you would, that reasoning is, is like a roadway. It takes you to new places and reveals new things. We're thinking things through. It also, you know, takes you to intersections and roundabouts where you have to think about where you are going. You know, we have certain threshold moments, some call it, in your life where maybe relationally or situationally you have to make some decisions. It's kind of like an intersection is your reason. And so with that thought or a picture, if you would, you know, let's consider where we live. Our modern age with the old uh, information superhighway, you remember that term? That was actually coined in 1983 by Newsweek, interestingly enough. What is the information superhighway now? It's called the Internet. Okay, so here we have this, and it's brought about some great changes, agreed? It's this source of information, but it's also caused some terrible collisions. It's created some unique challenges, because here's what's happened. It's not the vehicle that's done it. It's those operating it that become a problem, and what I mean is, Information must be sorted into knowledge. Knowledge applied brings wisdom. Does that make sense? You've done a search, right? You typed in something in some, you know, search engine, and you were hoping to get clarity. But what you got was way too many options. So now you have all these things. You have to sort out all this information, and you realize, man, this is whack. Some of this is bogus. Some of this shouldn't even have shown up on my search. And so you have to take this information and you've got to sort it out because information without knowledge leads to confusion. So you think about, you know, what you have and you see the picture, the, the parallel, if you would. You think about where you're going, your thoughts, your opinions. And you want to think that through because you want to take information and, and assimilate that into knowledge because when knowledge is applied, that's what we call wisdom. So we have in this text people dealing with some challenges. They were not sure about some things they needed to be sure about. It's why we have chose as a 
gathering of people, our leadership team, for the last 25 years, we've chose to declare the Word of God, to walk through, if you would, whether we call it a Bible study or you know, our gathering time here. I love to be able to go through the Word of God together because I believe we should immerse ourselves in the whole counsel of God, Genesis to Revelation, that we can be taught by God and we would know what is sure and sound doctrine. So we'd be sure, because you can tell by what we've already read, there was some confusion that had crept in. There were some challenges. And what was the challenge? The resurrection was the problem, agreed? They were okay with Jesus, Jesus rising from the dead. They, it had been proven. But the problem of the resurrection is that it was miraculous. See, that's the dilemma. That's the challenge. There's no other explanation for it. And the problem then becomes man has no control over miracles. See, internally within us, individually, and even quite honestly collectively, we often reason and explain so we can influence future events, uh, pending problems, possible improvements. That's actually good, great even. Mankind, if you haven't thought about this, but we are uniquely equipped among creation. We are uniquely equipped with intelligence, emotion, and memory, among other things, in this horizontal realm. That we're very. I have a. I have a, a, a Labrador Retriever. They're actually rated among, you know, say if you start with a Chihuahua and work your way up, you know, they're a little smarter. Dogs are rated. Don't take it personal if you've got a. Chihuahua, personally. You know where I'm going with this. The dogs are rated pretty smart. It's still just a dog. It's still just a dog. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's not that smart in the, in the order when, in comparison. You know, dolphins are credited to being highly intelligent, but they swim into nets. I mean, even, you see what I'm saying? We are uniquely created with the capacity to reason and learn, and not just in a... In a um, I guess you'd say an objective way, but also with emotion, with a subjective way. We're, we have this capacity. The problem is we can't explain miracles without setting aside our restrictive reasoning. We tend to want to explain, not just to blame. Um, think of it this way. You... Don't, you don't have to raise your hand, but has, has anybody had anything that would be a cold symptom? A cough, a sneeze, a sniffle, a, a headache, pains in the, within the last month? If you haven't, get ready. You're going to. Okay. But if you have thought about this, this is really interesting, I think, in that when we have that, we then deduce through restrictive human reasoning who gave it to us. Or where we got it from. Oh, I got it from this. Like we're junior epidemiologists and we can solve this, this, all this stuff. And let's just, you know, it's not that we're trying to blame. It's just our natural way of thinking. Okay, what caused it? Because if we can sort that out, we can maybe adjust and keep from having it happen again. The problem is we, 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 we kind of go down the wrong track. You probably walk through a sneeze cloud at Walmart or something. You know what I'm saying? There's so many variables. And this is what I find interesting. We tend to want to figure out who gave it to us, but we never tell anybody who we gave it to. 
It's always the other way around. And, it, and I'm saying this, not I don't think it's a blame game thing. I think it's just the way we reason. That's why the resurrection for many is a problem. Because it's miraculous. It's God doing something, and he doesn't check with people before he does it. When God intervenes by way of miracles, man not, cannot explain it or repeat it. Jesus' resurrection was a miracle. It was a miracle that was foretold, it's called prophecy. It was embedded, written in what we call the Old Testament of the Bible. It was foretold hundreds of years before it took place. It was a miracle that, that Jesus declared himself. He even said, I am the resurrection and the life. He went on to even say that it, he would be killed. He proclaimed this, that he would be killed and then rise again the third day. So all that could be very damning evidence against him if he doesn't rise from the dead. But guess what? We know to be true. Miraculously, he rose from the dead. The resurrection was not an unknown event to take place. It was unexplainable by human restrictive reasoning. It was a miracle. And so, let me just finish this layout because this is foundational to how this this portion of Scripture is, is processed, and we understand, and we find ourselves you know, receiving it and then actually even applying it. There are two types of, of reasoning, uh, two types of wisdom, according to the Bible. James 3 tells us that there is wisdom that is on a, on a horizontal plane, if you would. It's referred to as earthly. And so that type of wisdom would be like, you know, we believe it because we should, just, just I think most of us here can readily say, we believe in gravity. You are sitting down. So you understand that's a, that's a truth. That's wisdom of this realm, of the horizontal realm, agreed? And there's many, many principles that are, that are proven principles. But that earthly also speaks of sensual, this wisdom that's sensual. So sensual would speak of your senses, of your, what you've seen, what you've heard, what you kind of work through. So that's the earth, this realm. That's where you and I, in Adam, we work these things out. It also says that these truths, apparent truths, earthly truths, earthly wisdom, has an origin in regards to motive. And that origin, we're told in James, is demonic. In other words, there's an, an entity, an agent, Satan himself, who would like you to study everything here and forget about there. He would like you to keep so encapsulated and so kind of caught up in all this that you don't look up. But when you and I, when we went from in Adam to in Christ, we exist in this horizontal plane, but we now receive wisdom from above. The wisdom that is from above is Christ-like wisdom. This is wisdom that reasons from a heavenly perspective while waiting in a horizontal world. It's our biggest, one of our biggest challenges, to be born again, born of the Spirit, but exist in this realm with its, you know, vacillating and variables and all the different distortions of what's presented as truth in the earthly realm. And I say this because we've got to recognize that that's where we live, but let's always be desiring to see things from the heavenly perspective and to know the truth of the resurrection has an impact in my life and in your life. Because what was happening there in Corinth, their reasoning would not let them leave the roundabout. 
They're fairly new in our in the West, these things called roundabout. They're an interesting traffic option because you enter into them, you have to make a choice when to leave them. Kim will attest to this. There's times, like there's one in Meridian behind Chick-fil-A, but there's actually another cult-like burger joint over there, uh, In-N-Out, um, that, that, that the people that are behind that is, is this roundabout. And I would go into that roundabout, and I would make sure that the name was true. I'd just go roundabout, make a couple laps. Drives her crazy. Because, you know, she's like, make a decision. Get out of here. Why do you do this? I'm like, yeah, it's a roundabout. It, does not, it doesn't require much else. Well, I humorously say that because our logic, our reason sometimes gets stuck. And kind of what happened is the Corinthians just said, well, the resurrection happened with Jesus, but it doesn't apply to you and me. They held to the core of a Greek uh, mythological kind of carryover that they believed, even though they're born again, that they would exist in some type of a pure essence type of form, not embodied. So they would just go on forever, just kind of being this essence moving through the universe, which was not true. And so they entertained that, something to carry over from culture at the expense of the truth. And we're told here, if that's the case, if resurrection doesn't take place, Jesus wasn't resurrected. And do you see the reasoning? I love this because it's reasoning. He's saying, listen, let's walk through this. Much like Isaiah was told by the Lord, come now, let us reason together, you and I, thus saith the Lord. Let's think this through. If you don't believe that the resurrection is real, then here's the reality. Then then Christ didn't rise from the dead. Look in verse 13. Then Christ is not risen. Verse 14. If Christ is not risen, your preaching, our preaching is empty. Your faith is in 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 vain or is uh, is also empty. When you see them when they're project, presented like that, if there is no, then you want to say, well, what? is the truth, because it's, it's, it's he's presented to you as an eye to realize, but he has risen. But he has risen. Therefore, the message is not empty. The message is full. Your faith is full. Your faith is complete. Most of us don't always think of walking in full faith and complete faith. We even ask for an added measure of faith. I want to present to you that God is not stingy. We're told in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12 that he imparts to everyone a measure of faith, a measure of faith to believe and a measure of faith for the situation you'll you'll go through. We want to realize it's complete. We just need to learn how to walk in it. Can we agree with that? We're so easy. It's so easy to walk in the reasoning of this earthly realm to not look and go, God, God, could you show me what it means to walk by faith in this situation? Could Could you walk? Because it's complete. Our faith is based on his accomplishments, his purpose. So the message, instead of being empty, is full. Your faith, instead of being empty, is full because he has risen. Furthermore, we can see in verse 15, we are some of the worst people, for we would be declaring deception and not deliverance. That's what he's saying. So we, if it didn't happen, we're false witnesses. Because we've spoken of him raising from the dead, and you said that he doesn't raise from the doesn't raise from the dead, but he did. And so the logic is working through. It's like, okay, think about it. Think about what you're saying when you don't want this, and you'll embrace that. Verse 16. 
what you're saying doesn't line up with what you believe. If the dead do not rise, then Christ does not risen. We're in an interesting time. Maybe some of you have heard this term. Um, it's very sad, honestly, in the, in the truth of it. But many are choosing to deconstruct their faith. Have you heard that term? They're choosing to, to, to take it apart. They're going to set aside the traditions of men and that the, supposedly the gospel has been corrupted by man's involvement. So therefore, they've got to tear apart everything behind and create their own philosophy, their own belief, their own truth right now. And in some sense, that's presented as noble and true, but let's, let's be real. To take it all apart and then create your own version of it is really dangerous. It's really risky because you're saying, I'm not, I'm not going to believe any of this. I'm going to set up my own. And so we, we are in a time when people are denying the resurrection now. They believe, well, I believe it's this, and they'll take some of the tenets, the very essentials to the gospel message, and they'll set them aside. And then they'll build, not on the foundation of the Scripture, but they'll read portions, and they'll create this shifting sand home, this palace or castle that's built on sand. And we know it's going to come apart. We already see it coming apart. We see, sadly, it destroys a lot of lives and a lot of people. This is just an example of not thinking through, listen, if if the resurrection happened since it did, it affects every area of my life every portion of my life. I don't get to take it apart. I, get, I don't get to say, well, I don't believe that part. If the dead do not rise, Christ is not risen. Verse 17, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. See, no resurrection, no redemption. And I know you're thinking, man, Dan, you're, we, we got it. <laughs> we were here last week for verses 1 through 11. It's so essential. I am not like, you know, portioning out. I'm just looking at what we have in the flow of the letter. And there's a strong emphasis on the importance, the realization, and the practical understanding of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection to come for you and I. Notice in verse 18, those who have fallen asleep speaks of those who maybe had been led to Christ or or led, maybe say you're a young Christian living in Corinth or not even a Christian yet. This person shares with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. You put your faith in Christ. And then that person passes away and you hold on to the truth of the resurrection, but then someone says it isn't happening. So then you're realizing that person's passed away and they have no hope because they didn't get this new version or whatever it may be. So that's what he's saying there. It's like, you know, you, they, they perished. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are the most pitiable. I could easily present to you from a medical perspective and even a social perspective that being a Christian is actually beneficial. I can show to you that, that for statistically, medically, when people choose to uh, dole or escape reality by what they ingest, snort, shoot, drink, whatever it may be, into their system to try to numb them to reality, that has a very negative effect on their psyche, on their respiratory system, on their digestive system, on every element. It's I guess what I'm saying, it actually, there is a point in this life, the quality of life, it's better to follow Christian standards. But this seems to be saying something different. You know what this is telling you and me and reminding us? The first generation church faced brutal persecution. When you chose to follow Christ in that generation, you know, many people were literally slaughtered 
because they chose to follow Christ. And so it's saying here, you know, if, if, if we're choosing this brutality, if we're willing to live with this because we follow Christ, we're, we're the most pitiable. I believe what happened in the first generation will also be seen in the last generation. I believe you're going to see more and more. Right now, Christians around the world are being persecuted and literally being cut to pieces because they believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the life that he gives them. It's happening right now. Well, Dan, how could it be happening? I didn't read about it. Really? Where are you going to find out about it? You think CNN's going to do something? You think MSNBC is going to run a special on the persecution of Christians? I can assure you they don't care. I'm absolutely positive they will actually run a different story and distort and twist it. So there's groups like, you know, Voice of the Martyrs, and, and you, can, you can do the research yourself. You understand there's countries even now where Christians literally are slaughtered because they follow Christ. So you see, what would be the point to put yourself to death, so to speak, when none of this was true? But if it is true, then you're going to see people are willing to die for it. They're willing to live for it and willing to die for it. So what he's presenting is like, listen, you know, this, this, we'd be in the, we're kind of a miserable state. I believe you and I will see an increase of persecution in various forms in our country and definitely in North America because it's been manifested in Canada already. We're going to see in the weeks and months to come more of this type and style of persecution as the day of the rapture draws near. So you just want to be aware and realize. Let's move on in this flow in the next eight verses, and I want to see, you'll see how this ties together because if we just looked at a portion in verses 1 through 11, the definitive is the certainty of the resurrection, and then uh, countering or reasoning through why if you say it isn't going to happen, the resurrection of individuals, then look where that leaves you. And now pick up in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, when the Son himself will be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. You're thinking, man, we should have stopped on 19. But you see... This now brings us into this, listen. So if you're leaning towards the resurrection is going to take place, let's just finish it out because Christ has risen from the dead. Because he has, because he is the victor. We're going to get ultimately in this portion in verses 21 and 22, a brief, brief history of humanity concerning mortality. Death came into the world through one man, Adam. We know God told us the history of humanity, beginning there in the book of Genesis, specifically in the Garden of Eden, where mankind was created. 
that mankind, Adam, rebelled against God, rejected the sovereignty of God, and embraced self, embraced functionally what was presented to them as ultimately the sovereignty of Satan, which is not sovereignty. Mankind rejected, rebelled against God. So death came through Adam. Life came through the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus, fully man, yet fully God. It is interesting, can we agree, that in the Garden of Eden, man was was created in the image of God. And man rejected God. Then God came as man and rescued man. God in the form of the man, Jesus Christ, comes and rescues humanity who rejected God there in the Garden of Eden. Life came through the man, Jesus Christ. Verse 23, each one in his own order. Christ the victor, the conqueror of the grave, was first, and those who received life from him will be resurrected with him. And we see in verse 24 to 27, let me just say there is a timeline, if you would. There's a, an order, uh, eschatology, the, the end-time chronology and scenario. Right now, we live in a time when there's a, an entity, a being, that is referred to as the prince of this age, Satan himself. He's allowed to do certain things. He's, he has a bit of a rule and a realm, if you would, right now, but he's not outside of God's view. God is allowing certain things to take place. So, what's happening? Well, according to Ephesians Ephesians chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Speaking of a battle, of a fight. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So in our little horizontal realm... There is a spiritual battle taking place. Have you ever heard, anybody brought up the question to you or maybe mentioned to you, do you think there's aliens? You know, that's a hot topic right now, right? Because evidently we not only have Area 51, we might have Area 52, 3, and 4. I don't know. And so here's this, all this speculation. What about, what about? Well, there are aliens in the sense of there's things that you don't know about. Okay, because I just told you. There's principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So there's, there are created beings. We know there's angels. Can you agree? They exist. You don't see them in form. You may experience their presence, but you don't, you don't see them. There's also fallen angels, which are of the demonic origin. They've aligned themselves with Lucifer, a third of heaven, aligned themselves with him when he rebelled. So they exist. So when people were say, hey, what do you think about this or that? I'm like, well, they exist. I'm glad I don't see them, seriously. And I don't have to go try to decide if they come from Pluto or, you know, Saturn or the outer reaches of the universe. The reality is there are things in this world because there's an order. There, there is a scenario. The, the, the God has made known the beginning and the end. There soon will be a judgment on the prince of this age, Satan and his minions. So we are living in the last of the last days. And then the next significant event that I believe the Bible speaks of pretty clearly is referred to as Jesus coming 
for his church, referred to as the rapture, the snatching away, the taking away, bringing his bride up into his presence. So that's going to happen. So you see there's certain things that are going to flow. That's what we're seeing in this text. So there's an order of things that are going to happen. The specifics I can share with you, like I've just said, is there's the, the return for his church. There's the great tribulation period. There'll be a time when he returns with his church. There'll be a thousand-year rule and reign, the millennial reign. There'll be final judgment. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth where there is no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, where as Christians, his children will live in the resurrected bodies created for that environment for eternity. And so that's what we put our hope in. That's what we recognize. That's what we hopefully realize, that these things are going to happen. And it says in verse 28, when all things are made subject to him, we see the triunity of God. We see the, the work of Jesus Christ as he set aside, it says in Philippians, his divine prerogatives. He came as a man, fulfilling the will of the Father by the power of the Spirit, accomplishing the eternal purpose of the eternal Godhead. So he didn't like, he's not just like detached. It's not, sometimes people think, you know, man, I'm so glad Jesus came because the father was so keyed up. Like somehow he's just waiting on a cloud to hit the lightning bolt and reset humanity. And then empathetic, kind Jesus comes along, cools him down, and the Holy Spirit makes him all happy. That is, there's such twisted perception about how God is. There's perfect unity, perfect unity in the Godhead. And so that's what you see. There's a point where this is all going to make sense to us, if you would, because we're going to see the culmination and the results, the reality of the resurrection fulfilled among us. Let me give you some summary if that will help you. What is one of the, what, here's something to consider in that the reality of new life in Christ, take that truth, that presentation. New life in Christ, well, in new life, there is signs of life, right? Physically, bodily, we check for vital signs. Those are indicators that this person, there's life of this person. Well, there should be some sign in the life spiritually. In your spiritual life, there should be an outward manifestation, some form of measure that can be seen. I believe these evidences can be seen in choices, that we, we start making different choices. We have different values, different priorities. Why is that? Is it because we're learning religion? Well, it's not. It's because his love brings life. He actually said that this is how the world will know that you're my disciples, my followers, that you'll have love one for another. See, when, when you, when I, in a very personal way, in a, in a deep, part of the soul, so to speak, when we realize his forgiveness for us personally, we're impacted. When I think of impacted, it literally hits us. It, it changes us. And then when we realize the expense, what the price he paid that we could experience this new life, the only response is gratitude. If you're not grateful for the, for the salvation, for the gift of life, you're not saved. Oh my gosh, did you hear what that idiot said? If you are not grateful, you're not saved. Because he paid such a high price as you let that permeate your reasoning and soul. And you go, man, I don't deserve that. 
I don't deserve the suffering on the cross. That is something that's unique. It's personal. It's something that you have to let kind of soak into you. And, and then gratitude is just the only response that can happen, honestly, for a born again, for a new life. Continue, on, continue with that thought. When you realize his love, you're forever changed. Because it goes together. When you realize the price that he paid, when I grasp in a greater degree what he's forgiven me of, I realize what compelled him was his love. That's why he went to the cross, because he loves us. His victory was an expression of love, paid for a high price. So new life, you and I have it. This new life has new power. I believe I lived too many years early on as a believer, as a Christian, trying to live the new life with the old power. The old determination, the old way of thinking, the old reasoning. You know, you do good and you do right and good things and right things happen to you. Missing that there is a new life to this. It doesn't alter or remove the principles. It puts the focus on something different, more of the person. New life is now. Life brings life. So some of us sometimes aspire, like, well, later I'll clean up my life. Later I'll get it together. Uh, sometimes we say things like, you know, at my next duty station, I'm going to change some things. Or maybe they arrive at this one and go, all right, I'm going to start going to church now because of this reason. Well, new life is now. This new life in Christ is meant to be lived now. Not waiting till the next place. Not hoping that, you know, it'll be different in heaven because it will be different in heaven. New life also reveals our future and certain hope, our future. Your future, as I've already mentioned, is eternity with Christ as a born-again Christian. Your future is not, maybe I'll make it. It's certain. When the Bible speaks of hope, it's not talking about the mathematical probabilities, the, the odds and possibilities of the weather being better, which was oftentimes how we talk about hope. Well, I hope it works out. No, it speaks of a certainty. Why do we have a certain hope? Because he rose from the dead. Because he rose from the dead to conquer death and hell, to forgive you of your sins. And so just as certain as he rose from the dead, ascended bodily into heaven, just as certain as that, he will return, as his word tells us. He will take his children, his bride, to be with him. He will, as he said in John 14, prepare a place for us. And we will spend eternity with him. I find that exciting. I'm not a fatalist. I'm not like trying to get out of this place quick. Too much. But in reality, I am looking forward to the things to come. I really am. You may have noticed I skipped a portion. A word speaking of first fruits. First fruits. It's an interesting term. uh, Beautifully placed to the Corinthian The earthly horizontal meaning, the secular meaning of this is entrance fee. So it says of the resurrection there in verse 20, the first fruits, the entrance fee of those who have fallen asleep. Goes on and says in verse 23, Christ, the entrance fee. Interesting, in a secular sense, this this, this is true. Jesus' resurrection paid for our resurrection. But to the Jewish background believer, first fruits has a deeper meaning. See, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, there's this instruction, this offering of first fruits. 
and first fruits, this offering was you brought one sheaf of grain and you, you, you presented it and it represented the future harvest of what was going to happen. So you took that one and you, you presented it and it was not only an offering of appreciation or thankfulness, but an offering of expectation, anticipation, that the rest of the harvest was to come. The Feast of First Fruits was observed on the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. When the Passover lamb was sacrificed as an atonement, there was the Sabbath, and then the, the, this offering, this offering of first fruits, the Feast of First Fruits. The offering of the Feast of First Fruits was a bloodless grain offering because there was no atoning sacrifice necessary for this offering because the Passover lamb had just been sacrificed. And you see significantly. Jesus rose from the dead on the exact day of the Feast of First Fruits, the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. His resurrection represents our coming resurrection. First fruit, him being representative of the resurrection to follow, the resurrection believers. So with that in mind, and to ponder and chew on and to study even deeper this week individually, we are going to take communion today. Communion is a remembrance and a celebration, a memorial and a celebration, which is interesting, agreed? It's remembering his life, and that's kind of, um, it, it brings you down a little bit. It doesn't make you get excited in the sense of you think about the pain and the suffering and the imagery your mind can kind of bring forward to help your whole emotion and sentiment take hold of this high price paid. It's a disturbing picture. But it's a memory of what he's done. But it's also a celebration. Communion is to remember what he has done for you. He has died for your sins, but he accomplished victory perfectly in rising from the dead. So it's a, it's a, it's a realization, a remembrance, and a celebration. So as the worship team works their way back up here, I want you to consider and realize what God has done for you, done for me. Communion is this remembrance, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, the first fruit of the resurrection and the certainty of our res- of the resurrection to come. With that, if you would stand with me, and we will, by way of practice, if you would, by methodology, if you want to see it that way, we're going to pray. And then uh, there's communion elements on either side, up here in the front, I believe in the back as well. So as we pray, we'll go right into a song of worship together. And during that song of worship, if you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, choose to participate in communion today, then you can just come forward and pick those elements up. Hold on to them, and then I'll come back up and we'll we'll actually take uh, communion together in that sense. But we'll begin with prayer leading into worship together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth as you stir within us to reason and work through, but not at a humanistic level and a horizontal level exclusively, but you would impart 
infuse your truth, heavenly truth, into our beings in this horizontal realm. That we would take hold of what you have for us. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. Thank you for the resurrection. May we never become so mature that we need to move beyond these elementary and foundational truths. May this be the building block and this cornerstones and the sure foundation for our life as we walk with you, Father. If you're listening or maybe you're here present and you've been listening to this and yet in your heart of hearts, in your mind, you're not sure you're even born again. I would present to you the simplicity of God's message. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What does that mean? Believe what? Well, it begins with agreeing with God, agreeing that you need forgiveness for your sins. You know you have them. You know the wrong you've done. You understand day by day a little more of the depth of the depravity, depravity the, the darkness that has crept in. And you would agree with God, God, I need your forgiveness. You agree that Jesus is God that he rose from the dead for your sins, that he conquered death and hell. And so you would agree that you need forgiveness of your sins. You would believe that Jesus is God. You'd put your faith in him. And you would ask, oh God, now teach me this new life you speak of. Show me how to live not like I used to, not in a religious fashion, not in some form to please men, but that I would experience this reborn life you speak of and that you as my father, the perfect father, the only one who knows me perfectly, you would lead me in this new life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. God, we are so thankful. Prepare our hearts even now that we would remember, Jesus, what you have done, who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.